Good afternoon and welcome to Dateline New Haven on WNHHFM, New Haven's home for community radio. I'm Paul Bash, your host, inviting you to look behind the headlines on the stories that make New Haven and Connecticut tick. Sean Scanlon does that. The last times he was in the office, he was running to become the comptroller of the state of Connecticut, the person who runs the books, independently looks at how we're spending the money, makes sure everybody's got health care. He was really eager to get that job, and he got elected, and now he has it. He come back to tell us how it's going. Welcome, Sean Scanlon. Thanks for coming back, WNHHFM. Good to be back. Always good to be here. And before I get into the job, I got to say, the one thing I always enjoyed watching you when you were running is how good your video chops are. <laughs> and I saw my first comptroller video with the monthly report. Yeah. Looking at all the numbers of how we're... Sp- how our financial, our fiscal books are in order, but you do it in a one-minute video, kind yeah. of being walking on a street in Hartford. Well, tell me about that. What is going to be the role of sort of new media in taking what a job most people never heard of but matter a lot for the health of our state? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm the youngest person ever to get elected to that job. And How I, old are you? I'm 36. And, uh, Good age. So I, I really believe that it's a job that most people have no idea what it does, but what it does is important to people. And... That's not for, you know, their fault. It's that I don't think that we've done a good job of explaining some of the intricacies of government. And so, for example, since this office was inaugurated in the 1700s, uh, there is a law that says on the first of every month, I have to write a letter to the governor detailing the fiscal situation of the state and the economy. And rather than just send that boring letter, which we do, if you really want to go read it, you can read it on our website. I said that I'm going to put out a one-minute video every month on the first of the month to explain to people what's in that And that's that a good discipline because it boiled down why it will matter. So like writing a lead in a headline, a news story, the danger is to oversimplify. So I was looking at your video. Sure. How do you decide what to put in and what to leave out? Well, I just try to think about what's the most relevant to people. And for example, in the last few months, inflation has been the most relevant thing to people, right? And they want to know what's going on with that. They want to know what's going on with job creation. They want to know what's happening with the Connecticut economy. And so... I just try to find what what I think is going to be the most relevant to the average person who is too busy dealing with their kids and going to work that they're not going to read a 17-page boring letter. That that letter is important. I'm not saying it's not, uh, but I'm trying to make sure this is digestible to normal people. And I noticed the big takeaways I got from the video were that for the first time in a long time, we have the same unemployment rate as the country. I didn't realize ours was worse. It's 3.7%. You and I might not think in a perfect world that that's good, but that's actually considered sure. full employment because the number of people just trying to get the right match, and that um, and that we have a surplus, and that our and that our uh, growth GDP. I didn't realize there's a Connecticut GDP. Yeah, and that that's that's growing as well. So basically, the economy's good. Yeah, I mean, for the first time in a long time, I think Connecticut's finances are in a really, really good position, and our economy is in a very good position. Can we do a lot better? Absolutely. Nobody is saying, from the governor to me to the legislature, that we've you know mission accomplished here. Um, mm-hmm. But if you look back at where Connecticut was 10 years ago, even five years ago, um, it's vastly different. We've had five consecutive years of budget surpluses. Think about that, Paul, for all your reporting. Well, in- for two of the years, they were a gimme with the... Um- with the pandemic relief money. Yeah, but that's... But even before that, you put in place with the debt diet, you cut down on debt, you paid into the pensions. It's not even... You know, that's a big thing that I hear a lot is, oh, well, this is only happening because you got money from COVID. It's actually happening because in 2017, when we had the worst of the worst of the fiscal crisis, we passed a bipartisan budget that put these fiscal controls in place. And those fiscal controls uh, are somewhat difficult to understand, but the biggest one and the easiest one to understand is that 
we have very volatile income in Connecticut because we are very reliant on some very wealthy people who right, live so in Fairfield. So if they have County. one year where they're claiming a lot of income, we'll get a lot of receipts if and, they're in the hedge fund industry. And, and what was happening to us is when the market was doing good, we would bring in a lot of money and okay. politicians would spend that money um, and we would not save it. And then when the things would go down and our income tax volatility would be on the downside, we would have very bad budget deficits. And what the volatility cap, which my actual predecessor, Kevin Lembo, suggested for the first time, says is that when things are going really well, we're going to take that money and tie the hands of politicians. And because of that, we are now at a place where we've had five consecutive years of budget surplus. We've paid down nearly $7 billion of our pension debt for the first time ever in the history of the state. And our rainy day fund, which is there in, in case there's a, re a recession, is literally at the legal max that it's allowed to be at around $3 billion. Well, it was so interesting in the last governor campaign, it was the Republican, the fiscal conservative, who said we're not spending enough of the rainy day fund because it was a rainy day in his view. Yeah. And it was the Re Democratic governor who said it's important to save for a true rainy day in case we get a recession. In some ways, and this may trigger some of your listeners who are on the right, is that the parties have switched a little bit in that regard. Well, even during Clinton. We had surpluses during Clinton and we had deficits during Reagan. Sure, yeah. Because... Um, you know, I think that there is a ideological position that says that if we have a budget surplus, something has gone wrong. We're overtaxing people. And I understand that. We just passed the largest tax cut in the history of the state, but we're also paying down that legacy debt. And I think that a lot of people recognize that we're finally making some improvements. And I think you're seeing a corresponding increase in our economic activity as a result of that. Conference. Is it also true? How significant is this, Sean Scanlon? When a rating agency says you're making the right moves, that improves your rating, which has been happening. And that that in turn makes it cost less to borrow money. Does that help our bottom line in a significant way? No doubt. And we have seen those rating increases happening. And my good buddy and New Haven resident, Eric Russell, who's our state treasurer, is constantly looking at that and talking to those rating agencies because it enables him to buy those bonds at a cheaper rate uh, and to do better investing when it comes to the state employee uh, pension fund that he's investing. But I think, again, Perception is reality. And for too long, I think that Connecticut folks just sort of felt like, you know, we were not doing really well with the economy. And I think because we're starting to see some activity, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. And I think you see a lot going on as a result of that. And then you mentioned on the right, when there's a big, when we max out the, is it 2.5 billion? How big is the rainy day fund? Three, what Three percentage billion? of our budget or? Either way. Right now it's three, it's 3%. 3 for a while, it was capped at 15% of our overall budget. And this year, the governor and I actually right when I first got elected, pushed very strongly to reenact those fiscal controls. And one of the things that we did as a part of that was to change it to 18%. This is very, very wonky, but basically- No, it matters because if be... we have a recession, it looks like we might not have, but but the, uh, so you mentioned that people on the right say, well, you got all that money piled up, tax us less, which is what you guys did. Yeah. And of course that makes people like me crazed because they're saying the real answer is, well, some people say you should be spending more of that money on immediate needs, right? And then, and then you guys say you guys strike a balance, immediate needs, and we want to be able to meet needs long-term by having money in the bank. But there's also the question of why aren't we taxing the wealthy more? If you're going to cut everyone's taxes, doesn't that in the long term, rather than making a more progressive tax rate, in the long, because as you know, according to the um, Office of Fiscal Analysis, uh, the wealthiest people in our state pay about three times, yeah. we, uh, one third as much of their income in, in taxes as yeah. people who are working class. Sure. Long-term, are we hamstringing ourselves by cutting taxes rather than just having a more progressive uh, 
revenue collection system. So I'm a recovering legislator. So this is my first session in eight years that I was not <laughs> that was not a legislator. But as you know, and maybe your listeners know, before the I was a, I was a comptroller. Yeah. I was the chair of the tax committee in right. the legislature. And I did push for a more progressive tax code. We did a tax incident study to look at what you're talking about for the first time in eight years, because I right. pushed for that with my colleague, John Fonfara, um, to look at that disproportionate thing. I think it's important though, the tax cut that they passed this year was not, when we talk about tax reform, that's usually code on the right for cutting the rich right. people's taxes. Right. When Democrats talk about tax reform, they're talking about cutting taxes for those at the bottom. And that is what we did in this tax cut. The people that were at the bottom and on the sort of the, the lowest end of the income spectrum and into the middle class, that is who got this tax cut, not the wealthy. And this is in no way a criticism at all. It's yeah. about what the paradigm you're working with. And I was talking about this Marty Looney on the air last week. Since Clinton, sort of you haven't had the option of raising taxes on the wealthy. We've been cutting taxes on the wealthy. You made permanent the so-called temporary tax cuts that did that. And that within that realm, you're kind of left, if you want tax justice, to cut taxes for poor people, or in your case, do the income tax credit, which Bill Clinton pioneered to try to redistribute wealth. But again, my question is, and Marty's point was, you have to go year by year with what's possible. You don't have enough of a majority of progressive Democrats in the Senate to override a veto from your own governor if yeah. you were to try to tax sure. the rich more. So in the meantime, you have to do it however you can. Yeah, I don't necessarily look at it. I'm not saying I disagree with Marty. I look at it from a different way. I just believe in trickle-up economics, right? Reagan talked about trickle-down economics. If you, tax, if you cut taxes for the wealthy, it'll trickle down to people. I believe in the opposite, which is that if you give poorer people a tax cut, they don't have the luxury of necessarily saving that money. They go out and spend it in the economy and they start a business. They buy things. They do things that help people. And I think as a result of that, you don't necessarily have to have the debate about do we need more tax revenue? Mm -hmm. We have more taxpayers paying less money and therefore they have more money in their pockets and that helps our overall economy. And have you seen that in the last couple of years? Have their receipts gone up? Well, that tax cut that we just passed literally was a have month ago. Yet, yeah. uh, and then last year, in my last year as a legislator, we did pass the second largest tax cut and i do think it's too early to tell but for example i came on your show with, i was the biggest proponent of this thing called the child tax credit right i was raised by rosa mostly a person. single mom yeah. rosa did it at the federal level and has been trying to get it more at the federal level but we did it here in connecticut and each parent got a in the summer of 2022 got a 250 dollars per child tax credit payment mailed to their house so if you had three kids you got 750 dollars in the mail that stimulated our economy in a big, big way and was a big boost to families in the middle of that inflationary crisis to have some money. When they get money, they spend it. They don't save it because they can't afford to save it. We're talking to Sean Scanlon, the new state, not even new anymore, state controller in his first year. Still kind of new. Still kind of new, still funny, but definitely knew your way up there before you got there. Back to this video you made. Are you doing this every month? Every month. How do you get that message out? So Joe Biden's gone around the country there is no question that on balance, our economy has done really well. Yeah. There's definitely holes in, there's always gonna be hole. Everything economics, right? You'd be, economists worry if unemployment gets too low as they put it, right? Yep. I mean, unemployment. But materially, he has passed more money than any president in history to help middle-class and working people. We passed record bills, the economy's doing well, and everyone thinks it's doing badly, no matter how many videos he puts out. Yeah. Is that something you're trying to learn? How do you get a message? That's a hard message. You watch Sean's video, which is, by the way, a very well done video, in my Thank opinion, you. the way yours always are. And I just wonder if I'm someone who's ideologically wired to just believe that you guys are always just stealing from us, the economy, everything yeah. sucks, even though it doesn't, according to the numbers. If I watch that video, how do you convince the person that things are better? Because well, Biden's that's the, not. That's the problem in our, we live in a post fact society and mm -hmm. we live in a polarized society. 
So automatically, when I put that video out, there's 15 or 20 guys that go on there on anonymous Twitter accounts and tell me I'm lying and tell me everything about what I'm doing is wrong. Um, because like you just said, they reflexively just believe that as a Democrat, I cannot possibly be telling the I mean, truth. even the Wall Street Journal's editorial page has praised Connecticut's sure. finances. And yet even is, then people are going to say... And I'm not just saying it's the right. If, if one of my colleagues on the right puts up a video like that, the same thing would happen from people on the left. We just live in a post-fact society where we just don't take people's word anymore and especially don't take the word of, pol charge. of politicians. But I'm somebody, Paul, who is an eternal optimist and believe that if I continue just trying to communicate in different ways and break down some of that mistrust by doing what I believe to be are pretty easily accessible videos where I'm not just kind of standing up there giving a formal speech that maybe just maybe real people who tend to tune out politics because they think it's all just people fighting will start to pay attention to it and that will help in some how way. do you reach I know you got some Cracker Jack young staffers how do you get people to see that video well, I put it on my social media. I think social media is changing. It and, is. And, Wait, what's going next? Well, I think the problem is uh, I noticed that less and less people look at the videos. Like my video counts have gone down, the amount of people liking it. And I think it's just a general, I don't ever go on social media if it's not to post one of my videos, right? Because it's just not something that I feel well, a like. A lot of things are going on. The, the, the social media model used to be, let's take what Sean or anyone does for free Let's make money on that by showing to as many pe people as possible. Yeah, but it's not even that. But they, just, they no longer do. They want you to pay to reach people now. They, and it's, They want me to pay, but also people are less and less going onto that social media for yeah. enjoyment because all they're seeing now is this partisan War. political content that, that they don't like. Um, you know, for me personally, like Instagram is my favorite platform because it's just pictures of mostly... I'm at an age where most of my friends are just have kids, so it's just like baby pics. I love the animal and... videos. I can't believe how good the animal videos are on Instagram. I, I can't figure out why, but like they're so cute. What kind <laughs> of animal? Like, like you know, fuzzy you, animals? You see like the cat uh, reassuring the rabbit the other night. Yeah, yeah, the... yeah. I get you. <laughs> or the yeah. bear rescuing the kid across the road. But sometimes <laughs> that's what people want to see. They don't, the, the average... I agree, Instagram seems to be one that's still resonating in that old way where you can kind of not just be fighting all the time. But what you have to, you have to remember, I know you know this, Paul, 80% of people in this country do not care about politics and do not want to see political content 24-7 all day long, left, right, right, right. They don't want to see it. Um, and I think that what used to be able to sort of casually be seen by people like that and maybe make a resonation with them no longer is seen by them because they just want to tune it out. And that's why we have the polarization, I think, because all the only people engaging on any politician social media are the people who far disagree with them. So what are you doing then with the video? Well, I put the video out as a hope that I get it, and I hope that I'm building up a reputation that those videos are there for people and that a lot of the things I'm doing are like that in style. And maybe people that were part of that 80% that don't really understand or don't really want to engage. When we're looking at the bear and the bunny. Maybe they see that video and say, hey, this guy's <laughs> walking down a cool street in Hartford and he doesn't really look like a politician. He doesn't look angry. He's not really talking like a politician. And he's not yelling at Donald Trump or about some other Republican. <laughs> maybe they watch 10 seconds of that and say, hey, I guess Connecticut's economy is moving in the right direction. And it's, and a, it's a broader question too, Sean. And you've always been at the forefront of this about how do we communicate in the new digital age. Yeah. Given that social media is bifurcating and watering down, right? Like we're seeing that with Twitter. Note, like whether yeah. it was Meta's uh, entry with Threads or whether it was Mastodon, nobody kind of come in 
and can really replace Twitter. Everyone goes on for a day or two because I think we're not using it the same way we used to. I'm not sure that there's going to be Twitter exactly as Twitter and Facebook as Facebook. Where do you think we're going in terms of how we're going to communicate with each other, whether it's someone like you trying to tell us about our economy or yeah. somebody trying to find other people who like the knit? What's so funny is that when Threads came out, I made a conscious choice that I was not going to post about politics on Threads. All a lot I do, of people did that. All I do is post about the books I'm reading, the movies I'm watching, funny reviews of TV shows. And the thing is so messed up, you can't even find the people who might want to find that on Threads well, right now. Yeah, but even, get what I'm saying, celebs. But, but the engagement I had by talking about not politics was a lot more than the political engagement oh, and you got I get it on, threads. On, on another while. And I think part of that, again, is because we see politicians these days or public figures as they're not human beings and they don't have hobbies. And I just find that somebody okay. said to me, hey, I saw you like read this book. I can't believe you as a Democrat were reading this book. It's like, well, yeah, I read books. I watch TV shows. I listen to music. I'm a human being. And maybe talking about that more is a way to sort of de- sort And of that's an old, not a new old meaning like five, 10 years ago, lesson about social media is that the more human you are, the more genuine, the more people relate to you. I think the more authentic you are, but but there's a perverse incentive with social media. If I post a thing right now, if Donald Trump gets indicted later today and I post, you know, lock him up, lock up the criminal, I'm going to get crazy good engagement on my side of the Are aisle. you going to get good engagement or are you going to get lots of views and a bunch of trolls who tell you to go Good to engagement, I mean that there's a lot of activity around it, right? But that isn't if, good engagement. If, if right? I talk about, well, it depends on what your incentive is in politics today. If you're Marjorie Taylor Greene and I just that's say true. something bombastic and I get a lot of people to pay attention to me, that's what she wants. But right? you'll never win being Marjorie Taylor Greene because you'd rather do something where you're doing reason. Well, what fact. I'm saying is yeah. if I post a tweet right now about the wonky pension reform that I've done, it's going to get nothing because because it's not something that's triggering to people in that very small audience who actually pays attention to social media. So then the media. question becomes, what's with, next? Given how many bots there are on social media and given yeah. how short-lasting, how evanescent the reactions are to people like Marcella Green, are you in fact having more of an impact if 15 people engage with you about the pension reform rather than 150,000 say you're a crappy liberal or go burn down Donald Trump for two I think seconds? It's I think it's trying to find ways to communicate with real people outside of social media, given that social media has become a very small audience of an echo chamber and mm -hmm. figuring out how to do that. And whoever figures out how to do that, I think will be successful ultimately in politics uh, because I think most people, like I said, are the kind of people who are just tuning this stuff out now, but we still have an obligation to communicate with them for the purposes of our democracy and news, and I'm just trying to every day find different ways to do it. Well, my money's actually on you before me figuring well, out how you. that's gonna happen. But Sean Scanley, what kind of pension reform for the 15 people are gonna continue listening? <laughs> what kind of pension reform are you doing and why? Yeah, so uh, the Comptroller's Office runs this program called CMERS. It's the Municipal Pension Reform. New Haven is actually not uh, in it, but uh, there is 107 of the 169 towns in Connecticut get their pensions. So they're cops, they're firefighters, they're librarians, they all get their pension through my office. And this program was created during the Harry Truman presidency. It has not really been updated or reformed since then. And when I took office, the people that work in my office kind of gave me this 150-page document binder that was my briefing book. And they said, one of the issues that you're going to have to deal with is that the cost of this pension program for these municipalities have gone up by 75% in the last five years alone. And I said, oh, my God, like, what are we doing about that? And they said, ha, we can't do anything about that. This system has been going on since 1947. It's a third rail. Nobody can ever do that. And I just so reject that um, notion in, in my life, in politics, in, in what I've done. And so um, over the course of six weeks, I got Democrats, Republicans, mayors, first electmen, labor leaders. And we sat in a conference room in my office and we negotiated an agreement that was then passed by the legislature that will save 
those towns and those taxpayers $740 million. And how'd you do it? What would they have to give up? Well, it's not about what they give up. It's about talking. And I think, Paul, you know this from you know covering some things and conversations we have. It, it's half the battle of anything is just sitting down in a room and trying to talk to somebody about it. And for so many things, we just don't do that because we just think that they're insurmountable problems that will never be solved. Well, for instance, when the pension at municipal level, the kind of deal they used to have to make was would the older pension union leaders be willing to have two tiers for younger people? Sure. Or other people said, will I be willing to limit the number of doctors I could see to get a plan that would save the money? What, what needed to happen? Because underlying the souls, we're living longer, right? Isn't that the issue? Yeah, and the problem that in is... In the old days, you had five years of pension, then you you hit the, you know you were in a grave, and sure. now you could have 50, 40 years. And listen, I'm somebody who believes in pensions. My grandfather, as you know, was a firefighter here in the city of New Haven. My dad was a cop. So I grew up in a family that, that had pensions. But the problem is that when my grandfather was retiring, he was retiring and then was going to, like you just said, not, not live very longer. Now what happens is a guy becomes a police officer at the age of 21. It's a hard job. I'm not saying it's not. You work for 20 years, and at the age of 41, you are now going to retire from that job and maybe do something else for 20 or 30 years, but you might live for 30 or 40 more years. Uh, and so 50. what we're hope, yeah, God willing, um, what we did here is not change the pension benefit that they're going to get, not change the retirement age, not do any of that, but simply change the COLA because to make a long story- Cost of living adjustment. Cost of living adjustment. During the Roland years when things were booming in the economy and Roland was giving out uh, you know, tax breaks and sending $50 rebate checks to people because that's what people wanted to do at that point, which in my opinion was sort of a short-sighted fiscal thing. Um, they changed the way the COLA was calculated on this plan so that it was not- anything to do with the plan's performance and everything to do with just having an automatic COLA go out every two years, right? Or every year, rather. That is not a good fiscal thing. And in the last five years, a lot of the driver of that 75% was an automatic COLA. Nobody gets an automatic COLA in the real world. It's all based on performance. It's based on, hey, did your company do well? Do you get a little bonus? And so we just simply changed the way the COLA is calculated so that there's no longer a minimum guaranteed COLA. We extended the maximum so it could go higher than that, but it won't be a minimum. So is the sweetener that, for the other side of what they're giving up, is that by not getting your automatic COLA, even if you wouldn't have gotten it if it was based on real-world conditions, you will also benefit if real-world conditions go up. If inflation goes crazy, you will get a bigger COLA, and if the Fed succeeds in keeping inflation down, you won't get it as high as a COLA. I think it's or a, is the sweetener that you're not going to run out of money in your city and town? Yeah, I mean, that's definitely part of it, right? I had mayors and first selectmen saying that they're going to fire firefighters because they can't afford the pension system. There's one town in Connecticut, I'm not going to say which one it is, they had $600,000 of increased costs on this, and they were prepared to lay off firefighters. That is a horrible thing. And as you know, from covering local politics, as your listeners know, our municipalities in Connecticut are cash-strapped because of the ridiculous, insane way we fund municipal government, which is the antiquated, insane property tax system in Connecticut. Mm. And every single city and town in Connecticut is detrimentally, negatively impacted by that system. And if you're a first selectman, a mayor, an alder, a city councilor, you only have so many options when the state says, hey, you owe us $700,000. You only have two options. You can cut critical services or you can raise the mill rate. And when you raise the mill rate, it just... It's a one more complication. And isn't COLA also somewhat outdated in how it's defined? Doesn't it take a whole basket of goods on which it bases whether the cost of living has gone up when, in fact, now economists are looking at very different baskets of what constant, like the sort of 
whether it's cars and food and real estate, well, there's different they ways separate to, out. There's different ways to calculate it now. I still believe in colas. That's why we didn't no, get saying, rid of how it. Do we right? redefine, have we redefined colas to more accurately look at how the economy works? Well, we use the CPI as the Cost index. Price, consumer price index, which also has been questioned about what ba- basket of, what goods go into that basket. There right? may be a better way to do it, but but for this, we did not change that. It's not affecting that. One other thing we did in it, Paul, in addition to this that, that labor did want was we created a drop plan, which is essentially a way that to keep people working longer. And so what you can do under this plan is, let's say that you want to, you know you want to retire in five years, but you're eligible to retire right now. You could walk out the door today, but you will work five more years. The way we incentivize you to do that is by saying, we will set aside what you would have made in your pension payment for one year in a bank account. And the day you retire, let's say that you work five more years, we will give you a cash payout of those five years of money. That actually is cheaper to do for us from a fiscal perspective than to pay you out every year. Is that because the the float we get, the interest to earn that money? So it incentivizes people to work longer. It keeps them in the workforce longer. And we are able to save money in the long run. Those are two of the seven things that we did to actually save money. But for a lot of municipalities, it's big savings. Hamden, in particular, saves a lot of money in this. Sean Scanlon, state controller. So you got something you want to have happen passed into law, but now you got to sell it, whether it's going to be videos or in person. Yeah. And that's to convince people to sign up for a drug discount card. Yeah. Tell me about that and what's the pitch you're making. Well, the pitch is, is this. Um, every single person that buys drugs knows that the cost is getting out of control. And as insurance plans cover less and less because more people are sort of siphoned into these high-deductible plans that don't really uh, do a lot for you in the short run, uh, the cost of what you're paying for drugs is going up, and the cost of drugs is the main driver of overall global healthcare costs in uh, the country and certainly in the state of Connecticut. I, most people don't realize this, as the comptroller, run the largest employer-sponsored healthcare plan in Connecticut. 300,000 people get their health insurance through my office, and so we negotiate a $300 million drug contract. We have an $800 million healthcare contract. All of that is done by my office, and what we find is when we do that contracting for state employees, their families, and retirees, we have a lot of leverage over these corporations and companies. And can you pit them against each other or do they operate as a cartel? Well, we try to use that leverage to get benefits for both them, but now other people. And that's what this drug discount is all about. So as I just said, we have a $300 million drug contract with CVS. We buy a lot of drugs. The people that are in the state employee plan therefore get discounts on those drugs based on the leverage of what we're doing. I'm now saying, alongside the governor who I worked with to pass that bill, let's confer those to everybody. And so we're joining this multi-state coalition called Array RX. It's right now working in three other states out west. And what they see with this discount card is they take the leverage of the state's buying power and they give it to everybody. And what you see happening in those three states right now, Paul, is that... Um, you save 80% on your generic drugs and 20% on your brand name drugs. So starting this fall, every single person in Connecticut can get one of these cards, go to their local pharmacy, whether it's Visals here in New Haven or CVS uh, or York, you know, but the, the Walgreens by York Street, uh, you can save money at the local pharmacy counter. So what, what do you have to convince people to do when you go in town to town? Well, we're going to roll out this uh, in a month or so and show people how they can actually get this card and sign up for it. Um, but again, it's part of what we talked about. It's just trying to let people know that there are things that government is doing to help you. You just have to know about them. And so often in politics, when there's not heavy upticks on these programs, politicians love to blame people and say, oh, 
they're just lazy. They don't find out about it. No, it's that we stink at communicating with people. And I'm trying to change that in all the things that I do, whether it's pensions, healthcare, my CD savings, all these things, just trying to make government more accessible to people. And Sean Scanlon, stay control before I let you go. Um, I want to talk about one other thing you're trying to convince people to go. You go in town, town, you got an August 31 deadline. Yeah. And that's convincing employers, really, to sign up for this MyCT savings plan as well as individuals. Yeah. Like, employer has to offer it, and then the person who works there has to sign up, correct? What is this plan, and what is the deadline? Half the workers in Connecticut do not get offered a retirement plan at their job. And that's not because the employer doesn't want to. Most of the time, it's because the employer can't afford to. And I was raised by a small business owner. My mom would have loved nothing more than to give all her employees a retirement plan, but you just can't afford the fees associated with that kind of 401k. So eight years ago, the legislature passed a bill that created this program called MyCD Savings. It was mired in a lot of controversy and didn't get really going until last year. And what it is basically is that if you're a business out there listening right now in Connecticut with five or more employees, you can go to mycdsavings.com and sign up for free at no cost to your business to give each of your employees a Roth IRA retirement account. All that happens then is you have to tell us who your employees are. We set the account up for those employees. If they want to save, they can save. If they don't want to, they don't have to. As of right now, 85% of people in the state do it. And when I took office, the day that I started, we had 800 businesses that are signed up. We have now almost got to 5,000 in the state. And by law, everyone has to do it if they have five or more. By law, everyone has to tell us whether you offer a plan or not at mycdsavings.com. So if you offer one right now, you have to go to mycdsavings by August 31st and just tell us that you do and you're crossed off the list. If you don't offer one, you just have to tell us who your employees are. We contact them. We give them the tools. If they want to use them to save, they can. If they don't, they don't have to. So I have until August 31st, you're home, my butt into jail. Uh, you're not going to jail. Uh, <laughs> def- definitely it's not. Okay. Definitely yeah. not going to jail. But um, again, there's a natural skepticism of government, right? I that, think it's great, but it had people. To my radar. But I've been through business. I yeah. did a, one of the first things I ever did. I went to a business walk in Westville, um, and we went to. Oh, we even covered that. I think you, I signed up for this thing. Yeah. I don't know. Come on, man. Let's go. Okay, uh, I am gonna. It's a good thing. I promise. Help us help your employees save for retirement at no cost to yourself. Well, it's always great to catch up with you, Sean Scanlon. Are you optimistic still? You're someone who believes that things are possible rather than surrendering to the sort of partisan warfare, nihilistic, nothing's possible in politics. After six, seven months in this job, how are you feeling about the prospects to do good in government? I'm still friggin' idealistic. And the second that I'm not, I should leave this job and leave public life because we don't need people that don't believe. We need people that do believe on the left and the right. And I think that's better for our country. And as I said before we went on the air, we need people your age. in charge because it's easier for you to believe that we, we see what's not possible and you see what's possible yeah i still believe it's possible all right sean scanlon thanks so much for making the time and your hard work and staff made sure you made it down here thanks paul good to see you and uh, thanks to harry dros for working the controls we're going to take it out with the afro-semitic experience performing i wish i knew how it would feel to be free from the group cd a plea for peace this is paul bass inviting you to fly free with us all day and all night long at WNHH New Haven's home for community radio.